Good morning, we're going to carry on with our series at the moment that we've called One Verse Wonders. Each week, uh, as many of you will know, we're exploring the riches of a single verse of the Bible together. And the verse that we're going to focus on and explore together this morning is Romans 10, verse 13. Romans 10, 13. So if you have a Bible, you could turn there now. Uh, if you haven't got a Bible, don't worry. Because it's only one verse, we'll, I'll say it quite a lot over the next 20-odd minutes. And by the end, I'll expect us all to have memorized it anyway. So Romans 10, 13. And the title of this morning's message is A Life-Changing Invitation. A life-changing invitation. Now, just imagine for a moment if when you walked downstairs earlier this morning, you found on your doormat a very important-looking envelope. And there on the front of the envelope are these four words. A life-changing invitation. What might you expect to find inside? What kind of invitation would change your life? Perhaps an invitation to become special advisor to the Queen. Maybe a letter from NASA inviting you to join the space program. Maybe an invitation from your favorite K-pop group to join them on a world tour. Some people know what I'm talking about. Maybe an invitation to collect a surprise inheritance of one million pounds. Maybe it would be different for each one of us. Different kinds of invitations would be considered life-changing for different people. But one thing they'd all have in common, being invitations, is that life wouldn't simply be changed because you'd received and read the invite. What would ultimately count is whether you chose to respond. Well, whatever might be in your fantasy envelope, this morning here in Romans 10.13, we find an invitation that actually is universally life-changing for every single person who hears it and chooses to respond. So let's read then together God's life-changing invitation to each and every one of us today. Here is what it says. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now this is in many ways such a simple verse And one that we might even be tempted to pass over quickly if we've already responded to the invitation that it contains. Uh, But it seemed to me like quite a natural and a helpful follow-up to the passage we looked at last Sunday, where we heard Jesus talking about the priceless value of our souls. Don't worry, you don't have to have heard that at all, but that's what we looked at. And there in Matthew 16, we considered Jesus' warning about the danger of forfeiting our souls forever and the incredible price that he has paid to rescue them. And we ended our time in that passage by just briefly considering the importance of responding to his offer to save our souls. So I thought it would be helpful this week to consider that element of response in much more detail, because just like that life-changing envelope dropping onto your doormat on a Sunday morning, the gospel is only truly life-changing if We know how to respond to it, and we accept God's invitation. And I hope and I trust that this morning, for those of us that have already received his invitation and responded to it, that being reminded of the just the gracious simplicity of his invitation will stir our hearts and give us even greater assurance that we are saved and give us an even greater love for the one who has saved us.
I'm also praying it will give us a greater confidence to pass it on and feel like we can explain it to others too, to those who've not yet had the opportunity to hear it for themselves. And I know too that there will also be some people listening here this morning or maybe listening online who, though perhaps have heard God's invitation before, maybe many times, yet perhaps you've not truly responded to it yourself yet. And I hope that as we take some time to explore it together, God will stir your heart and give you the desire and the confidence to respond. Now, I have to apologize in advance. For some reason in the week, it made more sense in my head to work through the invitation backwards. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to do it in reverse. We're going to break this verse down into three parts with three questions as our headings. Simply put, our questions are what, how, and who? Or to go a little bit longer, we're going to see, first of all, what is this an invitation to? And then how should we respond to this invitation? And thirdly, who is this invitation for? So that's where we're going. First of all, then, what is this an invitation to? Well, the answer to that question is summed up in the very last word of the verse. It's an invitation to be saved. But what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to be saved? Well, we don't need to go far for an answer because in the seven or eight verses that lead up to this one, Paul gives two clear and complementary definitions of what this word saved means. The first definition he gives is a big, wide, all-encompassing way of describing this great salvation. It's summed up in the words of verse 12, where Paul writes, God bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Uh, and these vast riches are what Paul has spent the whole of the letter to the Romans opening up and unpacking and explaining and celebrating. They include rescue from judgment, the forgiveness of our sins, peace with God, eternal life and new life in Christ, freedom from sin's penalty and power, the promise of future resurrection, adoption into God's family, becoming heirs with Christ, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and living with the sure and certain knowledge that God is for us, working all things for our good and that nothing can ever separate us from his love. And that's just a taster of the riches God bestows on those he saves. But does someone need to know and understand all of that in order to be saved? Absolutely not. Those are the riches of salvation that we have a lifetime to explore and enjoy once we've been saved. But Paul also has a much narrower and more focused definition for us in verse 6. In verse 6, he, he hones in with a laser-like precision onto the very heart of what it means to be saved when he talks about the righteousness based on faith. Now, this is the thing that Paul talks about more than anything else in all of his letters. This is what lies at the heart of what it means to be saved. That what we need is a righteousness based on faith. So, does a person need to understand this aspect of salvation in order to be saved? Well, to some degree, actually, they do. A person has to understand, at least in its simplest form, how it is that they, a sinner, can be made right with God. 
because there's a right way and a wrong way for us to try to get right with God. The wrong way is to think that we can make ourselves acceptable to God by our own efforts and good deeds. Uh, This also can include the thinking that where we fall short of God's standards, we can just make up the shortfall by trying harder and doing more good. What's so sad is that it's this view that most people you might bump into on the street assume is the correct one. Every man-made religion out there has some version of you get right with God or you achieve enlightenment, you get saved by being a good person, by making sure your good deeds outweigh the bad. And many people even assume that that's what Christianity must teach too, that it's a list of do's and don'ts that you need to work hard to follow in order to earn acceptance with God. But that simply is not the message of the Bible, not on one of its 2,000 pages. At least that's how many pages are in my copy here. Not on a single page page is that the message of the Bible. Because as Paul writes earlier in the book of Romans, if you want to earn a right standing before God by your own efforts, the only way to do it is to keep his law perfectly, to never put a foot wrong. You have to be utterly perfect because he is utterly holy and good. But none of us are, are we? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that Romans 3 verse 20 says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified. No one will be counted as righteous in God's sight. Not by works of the law. Not by human effort. Not by good deeds. That verse rules out every single one of us just as completely as if it had said, You must have three heads and a tail in order to get right with God. No one is righteous, no, not one. So what can we do to be saved, to to receive this word, this thing, saved, that we see in our one verse wonder this morning? What do we need if we can't produce a righteousness of our own based on our own efforts? Well, what we need is a completely different source of righteousness. Something that Paul has called the righteousness based on faith. We need to receive by faith a righteousness from God that is not our own. One that we don't deserve and can never earn for ourselves. We need God to give us someone else's righteousness as a gift. We need Christ's righteousness. And receiving that gift from God is at the heart of what it means to be saved. That is what this invitation is to this morning. It is an invitation to be saved. It is an invitation to be made right with God through faith in Jesus. And so the next obvious question for us to ask is, how should we respond to this invitation? That's our second heading this morning. That's where we're going to spend most of the rest of our time. How should we respond to this invitation? Well, wonderfully, our one verse wonder tells us exactly how. It tells us right there in the middle of the verse, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what's so significant about the Lord's name? What's in a name? We, of course, use names all the time, don't we? We we often call the name of a person because we're trying to get their attention. 
to let them know that it's them that we're addressing. Parents call on their children's names a lot, which is one reason why it's so important that you choose their names wisely. And I, I think this goes for pets as well. You're going to be calling it aloud a lot more than you think as you try to get their attention. So you don't want it to be a tongue twister or have too many syllables in it. That's just going to wear you out. But is that what Paul is talking about here? Is the idea that you have to call on the Lord's name because he's a long way away and very busy? So you need to get his attention. You, you need to make sure that God knows it's you, it's him that you're addressing when you ask to be saved. Well, no, that can't possibly be it, can it? The Bible tells us God knows every thought and intention of our hearts before we know them ourselves. He knows every word we speak before it leaves our lips. We don't need to do something special or say something special to get his attention. So what's so significant about calling on the name of the Lord? Well, throughout the Bible, names carry great meaning and significance. Names are meant to reveal what a person is like. They're meant to embody a person's character and ways. Sometimes people actually change their names to reflect a change in their character, uh, to, to reflect the new person that they've become. But more than any other name, God's name, the Lord, is the sum and substance of who he is and what he's like. His name embodies everything about him, about his character and his ways, so that I don't know if you remember this story. When Moses asked God to show him his glory, God said, Exodus 33, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So Moses is asking to see God's glory. He wants to see the bright, shining radiance of who God is. And God says, I'll do that for you. I'll show you by proclaiming before you my name. God's name reveals the glory of what God is like. And then we read, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is the Lord's name the very essence of who he is and what he's like. And that's who Romans 10.13 invites us to call upon in order to be saved. Now, just think about this for a moment. Could you imagine a better God to call upon to be saved? A more well-suited God to come before and ask for mercy and forgiveness and a salvation that is the very opposite of what we deserve. I don't believe the human imagination could ever devise a God more suited and more graciously disposed towards guilty and broken sinners than this God with this name. But the human imagination doesn't have to devise a God like this because this is what the real God is like. This is what the Lord is like. This is his name. And this is the God who says to everyone here this morning, everyone who calls upon my name will be saved. What confidence that should give us to accept his invitation. Far more confidence, in fact, than Moses would have had. Moses heard the Lord declare his grace and his mercy to him, but we can actually see God 
demonstrating his gracious name and merciful ways in the person of his son, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself by becoming a man, taking on the form of a servant. He lived the perfect life that we all fail to live, and he died the sinner's death that we all deserve to die. It's Jesus who God has now set forth as the Lord of all, the one on whose name even the very worst of sinners can call in order to be saved. That's the significance of the name of the Lord. But what exactly does it mean to call on him? What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Well, throughout the Bible, this, this simple little phrase, call on, is used to encompass and include three particular things. First of all, it's used to describe worship, recognizing that God is God. So we read very early on in the Bible story that uh, Genesis 4:26. at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So the people have been trying to live without God for some time, but then the time came when they began to call upon his name. They began to acknowledge and worship God again. And perhaps you've been living your life up to now largely ignoring God, trying to live without him, not acknowledging who he is, and certainly not giving to him the worship that he is due. So for you to respond to the invitation here in Romans 10.13 this morning, for you to now call on the name of the Lord would mean beginning by acknowledging that God is God and that he's worthy of your worship a worship that up to now you have failed to give. That's the first thing that's meant by this phrase call on here. The second way the Bible uses this phrase is to describe prayer, the act of asking God to do something or to give us something that we need. So for example, remember the story of Elijah and the, uh, in his face-off with the prophets of Baal. Elijah challenged these priests of a false god. He challenged them. He said to them, 1 Kings 18, you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Because Elijah knew that what set apart the true God from all of the false gods is that he actually hears our prayers and is able to answer them. That's a part of his glory, that he's a prayer-answering God. So for you or I to respond to his invitation this morning would involve us actually praying to God and asking him to save us. Salvation is something that God promises to give to those who actually turn to him and ask for it. Now, let me just draw out a, a few implications from that. Firstly, calling on God to be saved is not something someone else can do for you. It's not like a, a group deal, maybe like a, a work lottery fund where someone else is in charge of getting the ticket every week. But if it, if it wins, you get to share in the winnings. But salvation isn't like that. It's only those who personally call on the name of the Lord who get saved. It's also not something that just rubs off on you because you spend a lot of time with Christians, as nice as that can be. Uh, so attending church every week isn't something that will save you. It's only those who actually call upon the name of the Lord who will be saved. And then children and teens amongst us this morning, let me say a special word to you. There's a few of you at least I know in here at the moment. First of all, let me say we love you. 
And we love that you are a part of this church family. You are a very special blessing to our church. Every single one of you. You're a gift from God to us. And you being here is one of the very special joys for the rest of us every Sunday morning. But you need to understand, if you haven't already, that you won't be automatically saved just because your parents are already Christians. Now, perhaps, for instance, you've got some family membership to somewhere. Maybe over the summer you're going to go and visit some places where you, you kind of get in for free because there's family membership. Some places that you become a member of, and I think this is the case with the National Trust, if I remember rightly, it's only your parents, actually, that need to sign up and pay. And so if your parents are members of the National Trust, you can go along with them and you get in every time for free by virtue of your parents being members. You get a free pass in because of their membership. But the gospel isn't like that. It is a massive blessing to have Christian parents who can tell you about God's way of salvation, who can show you Christ, and who can show you the joy of making him your saviour. But they can't personally have saving faith for you. They can't respond to God's invitation on your behalf. They can't do it for you, though they would do it for you in a heartbeat if they could. What they do do with all of their hearts is pray to the Lord that he would lead you to a place where you will respond for yourself, where you'll respond and put your own trust in Jesus, where you will personally call on his name to be saved. And let me say as well this morning, you are never too young to do that. If you're old enough to know that you're a sinner and you believe Jesus is a great saviour who died in our place for our sins, that's all you need to know in order to call on his name and be saved. So why not speak to one of your parents later today if you'd like them to help you think this through and respond? Or you could just go talk to God about it in prayer and then go tell your parents what you've done. Now, returning to all of us, young and old together, We've seen that to call on God is to firstly acknowledge him as God. It is secondly to pray to him, asking him for rescue. And thirdly and finally, it is to trust in him, to trust in his promises to save. And it's that ingredient of trust that Paul puts particular emphasis on just a few verses earlier in Romans 10 verse 9, where he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, do you notice he, he doesn't just say all you need to do is believe these things in your head. That you just need to believe on an intellectual level that yes, Jesus is Lord, that he died on the cross for our sins and then God raised him from the dead. No, Paul's words are clear. What's needed is more than just belief in your head. What's needed is belief in your heart, a heartfelt faith, a heartfelt trust in what God has done for us in Christ. He stresses the same thing again in verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified. It's about the heart. It's about your heart believing, trusting in Christ and in his death and resurrection, trusting that he paid the price for our sins and has made a way for us to receive a whole new standing before God. That thing we looked at earlier, a righteousness that comes by faith. So 
uh, let's bring all of those three ingredients together. To call on the name of the Lord is to acknowledge him and recognize him as God. It is to actually ask him to forgive us and save us from our sins. And it is to place our heartfelt trust in Christ who died in our place and on the third day rose again. This is what we have to do to be saved. This is all we have to do. Call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. This is God's invitation. But there's one more thing that I think any sensible person does when they receive such a life-changing invitation. You, you, you check back up the page, you, you check back on the envelope. Who is this addressed to? Is this invitation even for me? Are there conditions that I don't meet that therefore disqualify me from receiving what's being offered? So that's our third and final heading this morning. Who is this invitation for? Who is it for? Well, take just one more look at our verse and notice who it's addressed to. Everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's an invitation that quite simply is addressed to everyone. Are you included in God's invitation to call on him this morning to be saved I don't see any exclusions here. It says everyone. Or as some older translations put it, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whosoever you are, whatsoever you've done, God invites you to call upon his name and you'll be saved. As James Montgomery Boyce writes, if it were not for this word everyone, we might think that the gospel is only for people other than ourselves. But here we are told that it is for you and me, all of us, if we will trust Jesus. It does not make any difference who you are or what you may or may not have done. You may be rich or poor, educated or uneducated, advantaged or disadvantaged. You may be passive or highly motivated. You may be religious or not religious at all. You may be moral or you may be very immoral. You may have lived in sin a long time. You may have committed adultery or stolen money. You may even have murdered someone. It does not matter. The text says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What is there then to stop you from responding to his invitation today? Well, perhaps, perhaps you're thinking to yourself, I, I just don't think I'm good enough to respond to him just yet. I just need to sort my life out and get it a little bit in order first. But don't you see how that would fly in the very face of this invitation? He's inviting you to call upon Jesus to be saved, not to call out to him once you've half saved yourself. Now, in fact, if there is one condition for calling on his name, one qualification you have to meet first, it's that you recognize you can't make yourself good enough first. You need him to save you because you cannot save yourself, not even a little bit. But perhaps you're just thinking to yourself, how can I be sure he'll actually respond if I call on him? How can I know? How can I know that he'll respond? And the simple answer is because he has sent you an invitation. We've just spent the last 25 minutes not listening to what I think, but carefully unpacking the words of his invitation, God's invitation to you. 
You have his invitation. So just think about, for a minute, the difference between you asking someone for something uninvited compared to you responding to an invitation that they personally address to you. So, for example, you could turn up on my doorstep after church and ask me to give you lunch. But you couldn't be sure, could you, that I'd give you what you asked for. Maybe I won't be in. Maybe I'll pretend I'm not in. (laughs) Maybe I don't have any food. Maybe I'm really inhospitable and grumpy towards unexpected guests. But imagine that I'd already invited you for lunch. How confident would you be that when you arrive at my door, empty-handed and hungry, that I would warmly welcome you in and feed you? I hope you'd be pretty confident, and not just because I'm a nice guy, but because I invited you. I wanted you to come. I extended an enthusiastic invitation to you, saying how much I wanted you to knock on my door so I could let you in, how much I'd like to see you and feed you, uh, how, much, uh, how much you really don't need to bring anything with you, not even a drink because we've already got it all covered. I just want you to come. Now consider this. When you call out to the Lord Jesus to save you, if you haven't done this before, when you turn up on his doorstep hungry and guilty and totally empty-handed, just trusting in his cross, you are only doing what he has invited you to do. You're responding to his generous, gracious, heartfelt invitation to call on his name and be saved. How gladly he will receive you and give you the welcome and the forgiveness and the salvation that you seek. He won't be reluctant to receive you. Not because you're in any way worthy, none of us are, but because he invited you. In fact, you honour him by trusting him to keep the promises he made in his invitation. So try him. Try him today. And you will find that he always keeps his promises. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And finally, Christian brothers and sisters here this morning, uh, though we don't have time to go into great detail right now, shouldn't all of this give us the greatest confidence as well? The greatest assurance that if his initial invitation to call upon his name is so unconditional and all-embracing, so gracious and with such a promise of welcome and help and salvation, won't he, now that we've already been saved and justified, won't he now graciously give us all things that we need for life and godliness whenever we call upon his beautiful, glorious name and ask him? If nothing in us could have disqualified us when we first called upon his name, what could possibly disqualify us now from continuing to do the very same? Well, let's all of us call upon his name together now as we pray.